Let's get going. Memory challenge. Anybody look at it today? First, okay, more of you. It's, how do you know we need to hear something again and again before we do something? Would you agree with that? We're just Americans, I guess. It's just good to, to say, I'm going to strap that verse on. I use that word because for 11 years I had to strap on a gun belt. Okay, that's what we say, strap it on, man. So you had this hook went this way and you'd suck in and <laughs> tighten and put your belt on. So strap on certain things. Anybody want to stand and say their verse for us? 1 John 2.25, you say, I just want to do that. I can tell you this, if you say it publicly, it sinks deeper into your long-term memory because there's pressure on you. Anybody want to take a shot at it? Let's have it. God bless you. Good job. Good job. That, that fires me up. It just does. Anybody else? You can do that. First John 225. And this is the promise that he has promised us, the eternal life. Amen. Good for you. Somebody else moved over here. I caught you out of the corner. Three. Ah, good job. Anybody else? We're on a roll. Keep going, folks. <laughs> Let's all say it together. First John 225. And this is the promise he promised us. Even eternal life. Hallelujah. What a powerful verse. Um, eternal life, eternity. I heard a quote one time that says, Time without eternity makes fools of us all. I think there's truth to that. If this is it, <laughs> this ain't much. Would you say amen to that? I mean, if you live to be 100, it'll go by you in a heartbeat. It'll happen to you that fast. But if this is but a breath in time preparing us for an eternity, eternity. That's my favorite word. Sometimes I just say the word eternity and my soul all of a sudden comes into order. It, it takes perspective for me. It just helps me. Um, Thus saith the high and lofty one, Isaiah 57, 15, who inhabiteth eternity. Now that is a concept the human mind is incapable of wrapping around. Everything we know is time. Eternity is a faith issue, period. It's like in the beginning, God. We know everything has a beginning, not God, eternal, the eternal one. Just eternity. Job 14, 14, it's recorded, if a man die, will he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change comes. I remember, in fact, even today I thought about, God, why does he use the word if a man die? Everybody dies. And God said, oh, really? What about Enoch? Well, except for Enoch. What about Elijah? Well, except for Elijah. I mean, Enoch was translated. Elijah was transported, chariot of fire. And he said, what about that bunch I said ain't going to die? Oh. The Lord himself should ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, shall be caught up. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up. How many of you know there's some of us ain't going to die? How many of you get to vote, you'd like to vote for that group? Anybody want to say amen to that? I just assume, yeah, hey. How many of you know if he comes before the sermon's over, it'll be okay? Say amen. amen. Just come ahead, because there's a bunch of us. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, euphemism for death. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the train. See, that's part of the believer's hope. Where do we get that hope from? This book of promises. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. It's going to happen. Eternity, eternity. The promise he gave us was a promise of eternal life. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Jesus said, my sheep, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. <laughs> Earlier it says in John 10 about a group that he says, other sheep have I that are not of this fold, meaning Jew fold. Gent Gent are there any Jews, blood Jews here? You have some Jew in you biologically. Anybody? God bless you, brother. I'm, any other Jews? I'm going to bless them because I get a blessing when I bless them. I bless you too. I believe that. Oh, people side with the Jews. They're still God's people, still his timepiece. I'd like to do a study on me and see if there ain't some Jew. And I love the Jews so much. I, I'll be honest with you. When I got right with God, I still was in the state police for another five and a half years. 
And if I stopped a guy that was Jewish, I wouldn't give him a ticket. <laughs> now that's crazy, but I wouldn't do it. I'd give him a warning and say, you need to slow down or whatever I was stopping him for. And especially if they had that, you knew they were Jewish. I even know what I just did, okay? Never mind, you're not enjoying that. How do you know when people curse God's people, they're in trouble? Say amen to that now. Don't you have to worry about God taking care of his people. He's going to do it. He's just plain going to do it. Now, my sheep hear my voice. How do you know the devil, it says he knows, God knows our name. The devil knows our name but calls us by our weakness. Hey, stupid. Hey, coward. Hey, failure. Jesus knows my failures but calls me by my name. Somebody say amen to that. See, that's the same, the difference between God, the creator, and the wicked one who loves to destroy. Now, let me give this verse. John 10, 27 said, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them, somebody help me, eternal life. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. For the Father who gave them to me, who is greater than all, nobody's going to be able to pluck them out of his hand. We ain't going to play. You can't take us away from him. Why? The gift he gives, the promise he keeps is eternal life. Memorize that verse. Ponder it. It gives inroads to a number of other scriptures. The promise of eternal life. Well, tonight, Acts 24. Why don't you turn to Acts 24 and we'll just get going. I'm going to preach the gospel tonight. There's only one. There's <laughs> I heard this morning Bonnie say, there's no plan B. And I said, amen. There's no plan B. This is it. This is the only gospel that is true. I don't care what avenue you take. The mercy of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the grace of God, the love of God. Whatever avenue you start out, head, you better end at that cross of Jesus Christ. If you want the gospel. That's where we're headed tonight. The gospel. Acts 24. Let me see. I should get there myself. Let me start saying part of it just to speed this up. And when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him, he wanted to listen, he wanted to hear, concerning the faith in Christ. The faith in Christ is the gospel. That's the, the faith. There's a difference between the faith and your faith. Your faith can fail. The faith cannot fail. Our faith being put in the faith is what brings eternal life. Our faith can grow exceedingly. How do you know that your flabby faith can in fact fail? Remember Luke chapter 22, 31 and 32? Jesus says to Peter, this is just before the garden scene, the cross and the denial, all these kind of things. He says, I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to go down, Peter. He said, you're all going to deny me. And he said, all the rest of them may, but hey, you're talking Peter. Remember that night on Galilee? I know who you are. And he's all swollen up with the fact that he knows who Jesus is. And he says, Peter, I'm going to tell you something. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He said, Jesus, you ain't wrong very often, but you missed it on that one. This is Peter you're talking to. Never, this is a loose translation, folks, okay? <laughs> but, I mean, he's swolled up with himself. He thinks, oh, hey, I'll never, I'll die. He said, I'll go to prison, but I will never deny you. And so said the same from all the rest. How many of you remember that scene? He denied it. Jesus said before all that went down, he said, Simon, Simon, pre-Christ name, surname Peter by Jesus, the rock, from sand to rock. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, to sift you as wheat, but I have, I'm not going to pray, I already have taken this issue to the Father in prayer, and the one thing I prayed for you is that your faith fail not. He knows Peter's going to go through his toughest 72 hours. When Jesus died on that cross and was buried in the tomb. The devil warmed his hands over the flames of Peter's failure. He tormented him. He said, he's done with you. You failed him. You had your chance and you blew it. And he was close to walking away from God. But Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. How do you know our faith can fail, but the faith cannot fail? Did you follow that? The faith. All right, we keep coming back to the faith, the gospel, the, the message of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He said he's going to. And as he reasoned of righteousness, I, I, man. it's so dangerous to review. Joyce said you review, you preach a whole different sermon, a whole, 
bunch of stuff you're reviewing. We never heard that. You know, it's always dangerous. But I want to just pick up the narrative where we dropped off last night just for a minute in Acts 21 and verse 17. Just let me read a few of these verses, make a couple comments to try to set the stage for where Paul is at. He is in Caesarea. He's under arrest. By the way, there is no legal, legitimately legal reason for him to be held. This is a religious deal. This isn't some kind of a criminal case. This is just a religious deal. The Jews are accusing him of something about their faith and all this kind of stuff. And so he has no legal right to hold him. But he hopes that money will be given him of Paul, okay, that he might loose him. He, wants, he doesn't want bond money, he wants bribe money. That's the culture worked that way, and it works that way today. Verse 21, that's chapter 21, verse 17, just let me read a few verses. And when we were come to Jerusalem, he said, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. He had warnings from two places, and then Luke said, we don't want you to go. He said, I'm going anyway. And he went. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. That's the Jerusalem church, Pentecost, Jerusalem, I mean, explosion. There's a multitude of Jews that are getting saved. And the day following, Paul went in with them unto James. He's the head elder of the church at Jerusalem, and where the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands, now they're rejoicing over what he's doing and his three missionary journeys. He comes back with a ticker tape parade of things that are just powerful things. They leave that quickly. It's in the same verse. And they say this, Thou seest, oh, that's great. We really rejoice with that. But have you seen how many believers there are in Jerusalem? Do you see the size of the church? Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who believe. And they are all zealous of the law. <clears throat> Red flag. They're all zealous of the law. They're all zealous of grace. Yes. They're all zealous of the law. How do you know when people get saved out of different religions, they bring religious baggage with them? I would rather risk Witness is somebody who has no religious background as all, at all as opposed to people who have baggage, religious baggage. Because it's almost like you have to detox that to open up eyes to truth. How do you know the Jews, if anybody should have recognized Christ, it should have been the Jews. Would you agree with that? If anybody should have picked up on who this guy was fulfilling Isaiah 53 stuff, it should have been them. They missed it. He said, look at all these believers and how they are zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee. And they know about you, Paul. And they know this about you, that thou teachest all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the custom. That is not what Paul was teaching. But he's accused of that. Because he's trying to, under grace, show them circumcised or not circumcised. Romans chapter 4, when did Abraham receive his justification? Was it before circumcision or after circumcision? Do you know how many years it was after he had received it? Twenty-some years. This man is God's man, justified before God, before he was ever circumcised and circumcised his sons and servants. Well, when was he made righteous? Can I tell you something? When he put his faith in the imputed righteousness of God, when he got the message of the gospel. And it's not a different message in the Old Testament, it is in the New. Not a different message. Paul's kind of going, whoa, that was a punch. Saying they ought not to, he said, I never, I never said that. What is it, therefore, the multitude must needs come together? Paul, there's division over you. You are a... Hot potato. We, we rejoice with you and them Gentiles and stuff, but the Jews are coming back from your Gentile ministries and churches, and they're saying that you are really slam dunking Moses and the law. And I got news for you. That's not good. You need to do something to remedy that. Watch this now. What is it there for? The multitude must needs come together. Lovingly, let me say, you want to have unity of the Spirit, but people, I doubt the church is ever going to have unity of theology. I mean, there's going to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. There's going to be different slices of theology within us. And there should be. That's okay. 
you really can have some. On the, what we're going to talk about tonight, there is no plan. There is no other gospel. We need to settle on how a person is saved. How do you become a recipient of eternal life? And say that that's it. There's no other road. No, I am the way that, and no other way to the Father but through me, Jesus. Now that one you can divide over. But all of these other kinds of issues, Paul said in Ephesians chapter four that he's not written yet. He doesn't write that till he gets to Rome. But he says, "I will therefore that thou." Though I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation to which you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that's what they're probably longing for, and I think Paul is saying, yeah, we need some unity here among Jew and Gentile believers because of Christ. Let's move on. For they will hear your hear. Verse 23, do therefore this, that we may say to thee, we have four men who have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them and pay their expenses that they may shave their heads and may know that those things of which we were informed, they were informed concerning thee are nothing but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Wow. I mean, we are talking about a seasoned veteran apostle. Pressure from the Jews. Maybe he's, now I'm saying maybe on this, he's in a place where he shouldn't be. And I know in my own life, when I'm in a place where I shouldn't be, many times I act ways I shouldn't act. Did you get that? If I'm... When God saw Jacob at Bethel, he blessed him there. And you'll be amazed how many times God will bless them when they are there where they're supposed to be. I'm just wondering about this. Here's what he does. Oh, this man knows the law. This great preacher of grace, thanking God that he's no longer under the law but under grace. We're not above the law because of grace, but we're not under the law because of grace. You don't take the law and throw it to the wind, but you're no longer a servant of the law. Watch this. As touching the Gentiles who believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing except only that they keep them. Remember back in the Jerusalem church, Acts 15? He says, we settled it. No circumcision. You don't need to be circumcised. We don't need to be making these Gentiles live and act like the Jews to be saved. He said, we only said, keep them from... Um, things offered to idols and from blood, eating things that are strangled and from fornication. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Then Paul took them, the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple and signify, to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering should be made, till an offering should be offered for every one of them. Do you know what those offerings were for purification? They were blood sacrifices. Are we going back to that? You see, I don't know who the writer of Hebrews was because it doesn't tell us and the theologians debate back and forth. It well could have been Paul. But this man Paul knew this. Hebrews, rather than quote this, let's turn to it, Hebrews chapter 10, just to see this about blood offerings. People, the blood of Jesus Christ accomplished at the cross of Calvary what over the centuries the tanker carloads of blood shed by animals could never accomplish. Year after year, it had to be done again and again. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Watch this in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll just pick up the narrative of verse 10. By which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and every priest standeth daily ministering, offering offering often the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. The sacrificial system is over. No more sacrifices. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The payment has been made. 
And Paul goes in and has a blood sacrifice for a purification. The same man who writes about the fact that he is pure. Under the pure, all things are pure. Boy, I think, why are you doing this? What is that saying? Is it, what do we do to make things right with people? What compromises do we make? Ah, I just struggle with that. That's the scene. I'll speed it up. He almost makes his seventh day of purification and somebody spots him. We recognize him. We're from Ephesus, the churches of Asia. It says they were from the churches of Asia that recognized him. He's the troublemaker. And they went out and stirred up the people and they went and they grabbed Paul and they tore him out into the courtyard and they began to tear him apart. They were going to kill him. The next day, when, they, when he was rescued, the next day his nephew hears about the plot 40 men have taken and they're not gonna, they're gonna fast, they will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. <laughs> How many of you know they finally changed their mind, I think, would you agree? They finally start eating and drinking. The nephew says, Uncle Paul, there's a plot to kill you. He says, go tell this to the captain of the guard. And the captain of the guard said, he's a Roman citizen. And at night they came, 2 a.m., who knows? And they had a number of soldiers, a number of horsemen, and they took him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. That's where he's at now. He's had his prelim. Felix sees through it and says, well, I'll tell you what, we'll put it on the court docket as soon as Lysias comes, the tribune from Jerusalem. He comes here every so many months. When he comes, I'll send word, and we'll put it on the docket and hear it again. But case closed right now. Now he's got his own private audience with him. He says... I want to hear about this faith in Christ. He starts his ministry to him by reason, to logically think something out. Facts that make sense to persuade a person into believing truth. The first issue he reasons with him is of righteousness. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us how he got started or how he reasoned with him of righteousness, but he reasoned with him of righteousness. This is a man who, let me give you a little context. He has written Romans about a year and a half before this, or a year, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, probably the ink is just dry on that letter sent to the church at Corinth. So those kinds of thoughts and truths that God is revealing to him to pen his scripture are in his mind. I don't know how he reasoned with him of righteousness, but as I've thought on it, he probably said something to him of this nature. Well, you know, uh, Felix, uh, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Where, where, where did he come up with that? How about Romans 3.10? There is none righteous, no, not one. He's going to reason with him in righteousness. Righteousness talks about the righteousness of God, the perfection of God. And he says, <clears throat> you know, nobody's righteous. But you know what? God still demands Perfect righteousness. Nobody's perfect. He still demands perfection. Maybe he started by humbling himself and sharing some of his own testimony. I don't know. I just know he's going to reason with him. Nobody's perfect. God still demands perfection. You want to know something? I was a Pharisee at one time. I grew up in a Pharisee's home, graduated from the rabbinical schools of theology in Jerusalem. And under the law, at one time, I looked at myself and said, you don't get any better. I actually was all swollen up with pride over the fact that I probably wasn't even a sinner because God would accept me based upon my ability to keep the law. And if you're going to find somebody, according to Paul's own testimony, he talks about under the law, he considered himself perfect. I can tell you this, that old boy would not use the name of God, Yahweh Elohim Adonai. He would not use the name of God with as much carelessness as Christians use the name of Jesus. This man honored the name of God. Honored his mother and his father. His dad said, I want you to be a Pharisee, and you're leaving home at 13, and you're going to go off to Jerusalem and sit at the feet of Gamiel. He obeyed his parents. He honored his parents. A man who kept the Sabbath. Can I tell you something? The Torah, the law of God, keep, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Talmud explained how to keep it. This is where the law takes us. And it said you could take so many steps on the Sabbath, and once you used up your steps... You stood there until the sun went down and you picked up your journey. That old boy would have obeyed it. He said, man, when it came to the law, my word was my bond. 
I prided myself in honesty. When I told something, somebody something, I, I told them the truth. I was a moral man. I think he went down through the laws and he said, you talk about a Pharisee. I thought I was perfect under the law. How many of you know what law sunk his ship? Any of you know what law sunk his ship? The Tenth Commandment. I believe his three years of being trained and taught by God in the deserts of Arabia, where when he left that, his theology was fixed. Because in Pharisaical theology, you, they don't believe you're born in sin. They believe you're born with no problem. <clears throat> How many of you know you do not have to teach your children how to pout. They get that from the in-laws. Say amen. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish. You don't have to teach them how to lie. It comes naturally. It is their nature. I don't know how the Pharisees could jump that hurdle. But they believe that basically the law, which they had the law, they just didn't have the truth in the law. The truth in the law is it demands perfection. You can't murder in moderation. Say amen. You can't go, I mean, how? It's all it takes is one violation of the law and you're guilty of the whole thing. If you don't think so, ask Adam. One stinking piece of fruit got us in this mess. One law. All the trees are yours. That one ain't. You eat, you die. One. How have you be willing to admit that on one rare occasion you sinned? How do you know it's a good day when you only get one sin? Would you say amen to that? That's a good day for this boy. But under the law, these Jews had been so taught that the law, if I just do more good than I do bad, God will look at me and say, yep, good enough. That's not the ministry of the law. The law demands perfection because it demands perfect righteousness. You know the law that sunk his ship? It was the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Now, you'd have a hard time murdering in this group without somebody picking it up. Cussing and swearing or taking the Lord's name, somebody's going to spot it. But you can covet in your heart in a room like this and nobody know it but God. Covetousness. That's just, Jesus said, you've heard that it's been said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoso looketh upon a woman to, to commit adultery in her heart, hath the lust upon her hath committed adultery already in his heart. Whew. You have heard that it's been said by them of old, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, he goes into that 10th commandment. So all you've got to do is get angry with your brother without a cause. Now, I've never murdered anybody. In fact, I've never even had a suicidal thought. I never have. I'm one of them guys just never have had one. I, my best friend who went home and be with the Lord, he struggled with that for years. He just struggled with times of depression and suicidal thoughts. Love the Lord. This is a good man. And he struggled with suicidal thoughts. <laughs> I, I'd look at him and say, I can't hardly relate. I, taking me out's never even been an option. Taking out a few other people has definitely crossed my mind, but taking myself out has not been one of them. Homicidal thoughts, I'm into them. <laughs> Got a problem? Pinch off head, remove problem. <laughs> I am guilty of murder because of that. Did you know that? And it's just been in my heart. Bless God. Oh, I hear glad some of the things that went on up here didn't translate how you live. Are you glad of that? Man, some of the things. And God said, well, I know those. And man looks on that outside stuff, but I'm checking out that heart of yours. And I know that your heart. Turn with me. I don't know if I'll ever get to the message. But turn to me in Mark chapter 7, just for a moment. Remember Jesus the, the, the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee, and he was into this kind of stuff, the traditions of the fathers and all this kind of stuff. And they had a tradition about how you wash your hands. And can I tell you something? You should wash your hands before you eat. You just should. When Joyce and I get in the car and we're in a place like that, we're shaking hands with all kinds of people, we got them little sanitary wipes. We wipe our hand before we eat an apple, okay? It's just something smart to do. But you can go to heaven if you don't wipe your hands. Come on, help me with that. Would you agree? Well, the Jews said you can't. They added to the law a tradition, and Jesus said, you teach your traditions as doctrines. He said, they're not. Here's what, they saw the disciples go through a field of grain. They took some of the grain and started eating it. Ah, they violated the law. They've eaten with unwashed hands, and Jesus goes, here we go again. 
He said, I'm going to tell you, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what's already in there that comes out that defiles him. And then he gives this grocery list. For from within, verse 21 of Mark chapter 7, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit. Just recently, Joyce and I have dieted for 40 years. Anybody been on one of them? Constantly, just, if we don't shut down for a while, we will go home a few pounds heavier because of, and it's not our fault, it's the cook's fault at this camp. How do you know that's the nature of sin? Would you agree? We've got to blame somebody for this. Nonetheless, I always just kind of say, and, and I do better with abstinence than moderation. I'm better off just don't, don't drink any pop. Just don't drink it. So we give up pop a number of years ago, and we just don't drink any pop. Because if we start, now I've never had a drinking problem, but I had a drinking problem with Pepsi. Mainline, I had Pepsi. I get my sugar, get my caffeine from Pepsi. Okay, And I'm a sugar head. I'm just... You put sugar on the tongue of a shoe, I will eat it. Frost it, I will eat it, okay? Aren't you glad you came for this tonight? Nonetheless, we have a candy cow in our kitchen. And all the grandchildren know. Now, when you go through the consecration, 13 years old or so, then you don't have to ask anymore. You should be, we, you put away childish things, and we should be able to trust you to not reach any, you know, stuff on your pocket, and that kind of stuff, like the little kids will do. If you, you have to ask if you're little, and you only get one piece and that kind of stuff. And the older kids now, they can go in and they take. But they have dropped that lid. It's a ceramic kind of thing. They dropped that lid so many times, and it's been broken and re-glued till it's not in the shape it's supposed to be. So when it sets on there, when you pick it up, it makes this clink, clink, clink noise. So you know if somebody's getting into that candy cow. I told Joyce, I said, I got to quit. I, I, because one turned into two and two into, just like a drunk. When I was a cop, I used to ask guys that were plastered, I'd say, how many of you had to drink? One. What'd you drink it out of, a five-gallon bucket? What do you mean, one? You know, you're plastered. <laughs> Am I ever going to get to this sermon? Okay. Because I got the same problem with the sugar. And I'd went two weeks, and I, I, I just swore it off. I'm not eating any more of that. And Joyce and I both, we said, we ain't eating no more of that candy. And after two weeks of absolute obedience, I was so proud of myself. How many of you know where I'm going? I wanted to reward myself. And Joyce is upstairs, and I came in through the garage right next to the candy cow, and the thought occurred to me, oh, just have one. And it's not that if Joyce asked me if I had one, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell her no, I didn't have one, but I just wasn't going to tell her. but I know that's going to give me away. She'll hear that up there. We got trained ears for that noise, okay? And I thought, maybe if I put my hand on it, I'm thinking downstairs. If I, no. So I put my hand on it, and I just went straight up as fast as I could. And it never made a sound. And it was almost like the Lord said, good job, Tom, you deceived her. God, why am I this way? Because your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You can't, it's what's in me is the issue. It's not this, it's this. I have been my biggest, I have been my biggest problem. It's not others, it's me. If the devil never tempted me, attacked me, accused me, afflicted me, assaulted me, etc., never one more time, I still have enough of me and me to self-destruct. Now, under the law, that's what the law does. It, it show, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. And when I had it up there like that, I couldn't eat the candy after that. The Lord said, oh, good job, Tom. And I said, God, please forgive me. So I put it down and made noise. And Joyce says, Tom, are you home? And I said, yeah, I'll be right up. And I went up and told my wife I said, what I just told you. She came under conviction. She said, oh, Tom. I did that yesterday, and I have not told you yet. My godly little gray-haired saint of a wife, she's as rotten as I am. Why are we laughing at this? This should not be a funny thing. I'm glad she's not in there. I think 
uh, Ezra went to sleep, so <laughs> I can tell that on her, okay? I get sick of bearing my... Right, let's get back to Acts, would you please? This is the stuff Paul, when he comes out, knows, and he deals with it through his letters. Can I tell you something? Paul deals with the heart of man and the sin that lives in there. And now we're going to take care of the sin issue by going and offering sacrifices again. He knows better than that. He began to reason with him of righteousness. And maybe he began to tell him his testimony. Nobody's perfect. I was a Pharisee and a good one. My parents were. Considered myself honest and moral and on and on and on. Jesus is Messiah? Ha! He said, I can, I can remember when I used to blaspheme this Jesus of Nazareth, his name. I called him a fake and a phony and a fraud. Read it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He was a blasphemer. And he's telling this guy who's wanting to hear him about his class act, and he's telling him, humbling himself and saying, we're in the same kettle of fish. He said, I did it because I was blind. Where do you get that from? In his first letter to the church, second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 4, verse 3. But if our gospel be hidden, and it was hidden unto Paul, it's hidden unto them that are lost, I was lost. But if the gospel is hidden, it's hidden unto them that are lost, in whom the God of this age, Satan, hath blinded the minds of them who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. He said, you want to know about the faith in Christ? I'm going to preach Christ to you. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He may have said something to him like that. You know what, Felix? It's taken me a while to get to this. I can tell you Paul's progression in understanding his capacity for depravity. And I believe the most unbelieved doctrine in the Bible is the depravity of man. The second most unbelieved doctrine in the Bible is that God still loves us. Because we have a mentality, God loves me when I'm lovable, but when I'm not lovable, he doesn't love me anymore. That's the way we treat one another, but that's not the way that God treats us. Amen? See, he's in a class all his own. He writes a letter to the church at Corinth. And he says, I was the least of the apostles. He writes to the church at Ephesus. He said, I was the least of all saints. He writes this letter to Timothy. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You're in good shape when you can see your sins as worse than anybody else's. It's amazing how sin gives me 20-20 vision on yours and blind to mine. Anybody want to... Now I can say, you got a problem? Big T will show you. And the same thing or worse is in my own life, and I don't even see it. He's seeing it now. I'm the chief of sin. Top of the pile, Apostle Paul. Sinner par excellence. Man, we're in good shape and we can see this. Well, you asked to hear about the faith in Christ. You sent for me, I didn't send for you. You want to hear about the gospel? I'm going to tell it to you. He's reasoning with him now. He's setting the stage. I can tell you this, the gospel's good news. Euangelizo means a good message told in a glad way. Maybe he took him to Romans 1.16. We know that's in his theology. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth of the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith according to the written, written, the just shall live by faith. Can I tell you this? The gospel has everything to do with the righteousness of God and has nothing to do with your righteousness or mine. You might as well get this in your mind from the get-go. My righteousness contributes zero to the gospel of Christ. The gospel is God's doing. I had nothing to do with it. It was in his mind before the foundations of the world and through his forbearance sought through all the way to the cross and the empty grave and the ascension of Jesus. It's all his doing. I contribute nothing to it. I come to it a condemned sinner by birth in need of a rebirth or a new birth. 
That's the gospel message. And he says, there's not one for the elite or for the well-educated or for the powerful and then one over here for the slave and the nobody. I would share the very same thing with your guards. This message is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe he took time to quote something he had heard Jesus had preached on a mountain one day. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't there. But I'll guarantee you, some of them disciples were that were penning Scripture. Some of the early church was made up of people that were there when he preached this message. It was probably 20,000 people, Sermon on the Mount, the hillside, Jesus getting ready to preach, perfect. Everything is set up for Jesus to talk and to preach, to speak with a loud voice. And in that message, and everything is there from soup to nuts, and you've got 20,000 people together. Can I tell you something? You've got everything imaginable. You've got pickpockets and prostitutes. And Jesus was known for rubbing shoulders with tax collectors and harlots. He drew that crowd. He was a friend of sinners. People around Jesus did not feel less important or less of a person by being around him. So he drew these crowds. And plus, he's miracle man. I mean, you're healing the blind, raising the dead cleansing the leper, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to them, mobility to the lame, and on and on and on. He had a crowd there, and it's Jewish. And Paul may have said, I heard he said this in a message when you got all these people together. He, in his message, he kind of stopped and said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness. And then he looked at a group of scribes and Pharisees who when they were coming into the crowd people just got out of their way. I mean, these people got their synagogue suits on. They got their flectries, their scriptures, their prayer tassels. They don't miss a synagogue service. They tithe of all that. They fast twice a week. And I got news for you. These old boys know the law. They could just quote her. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that bunch's righteousness, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to make her to heaven. I bet their hearts just went, I'm on my way to hell because I'll never be as good as they are. Can I tell you something? Our righteousness had better exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because theirs was, I hope I'm doing good enough. I hope I'm keeping more good than I am bad. You don't understand the law. They had the law, didn't understand the truth in the law. Oh, my. Well... If you have your Bibles, just turn over, because he's, he, he's written Romans. Let's say that it's, it's safe to say he's reasoning with him from the scriptural truths and principles in the book of Romans. You say, well, man, if you got to have better righteousness than what you used to have. What kind of righteousness you got now that makes it acceptable to God? This gospel, what is this faith in Christ? He said, verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, he says this, now we know that whatsoever, whosoever, we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. Drum roll. Nobody escapes this. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, Pharisees, shall no flesh be justified and made righteous. Same Greek word, diaku, same word be made righteous in God's sight. Nobody under the law is going to come to God and say, what do you think? Have I done good enough? And God say, righteous. You meet the standard. When a God, a holy God, and a righteous God says, one sin's all it takes. And we were born in sin. We came out of the womb sinners, and can I tell you something? We've been losing ground ever since as sinners. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is witnessed by the law and the prophets, verse 21. This is probably one of the greatest paragraphs of the gospel that you're going to find in the New Testament. Concise, accurate, to the point. Apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is what the law and the prophets were teaching anyway. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Christ Jesus, unto and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How many of you just reached out and brought Felix and Drusilla and the guards right into that circle? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. We don't measure up to the standard of God's demand for perfect righteousness. 
What are we going to do then if that's all that God will accept is this perfect righteousness? Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He keeps pointing to Christ. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, which means an objective provision. Jesus was not this mystical spiritual being that didn't have real flesh. He was really totally man and totally God. He became the propitiation, the wrath absorber for my sin at the cross was poured out the wrath of God upon him who knew no sin. He became sin for us. And he's pouring out the wrath. To declare, I say at this time, here's what the Christian boasts in. This is what we as believers celebrate, why we worship, why we adore, why we praise God. We celebrate this, whom God has set forth to be propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that through the for, for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believeth in Jesus. So I can never justify myself before God. God justifies me before God. He's the one who declares me just. You see, I'm not just. I still sin. The declaration of God is when you put your faith in Christ, it's unto you the message and upon you. What is upon me? His righteousness. When the Father sees me now, he sees me just like his own son Jesus who was he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets but to fulfill them he fulfilled them all I get that righteousness that becomes my identity my new identity in Christ is one that has been made righteousness well where is boasting then that's what Paul said well, where can a man boast then where is boasting then I love the name it is excluded how many of you know that no Christian can stand before God and strut his stuff would you say amen to that it's all Jesus. It's all what he has done for me. What, not what I'm doing for him. What he's done for me. Well, is this too intense? Is, am, am I talking too fast? When I go to the South and preach without fail, somebody comes up to me and says, Brother, you're going to have to slow down. <laughs> I was in Texas doing a men's retreat just outside of Dallas, and a guy come up and said, Brother, I'm about three, four sentences behind you. <laughs> That's all the emotional release you get. Back to serious, okay? Boy, this is good stuff, dear people. If you understand the gospel, you'll know exactly what, what you glory. What, what do the atheists celebrate? What do they get excited about? There is no God. We die worm food. How many of the believer has something to celebrate? Would you say amen to that? A God to worship who loves us and has provided for us what we could never provide for ourselves. Being justified freely, you look up the word, without cost to the recipient, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. See, when the gospel is preached, God kicks, he commands the light to shine. We don't figure this out. He kicks on the light, we get it. I'm a sinner, he's a savior, because he paid the sacrifice for my sins. The gift, I'll take her, Lord, and receive Christ. <laughs> Well, I'll skip a bunch of other verses. We'll just go to this one. We're here. Oh, I'm adding to this. Stay with me. 2 Corinthians 5.21. There's a good memory verse. For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin. Category all his own. We all know sin. Say amen. But he knew no sin. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Christ. In Christ. When did he do it? When did God do that? I love that video. <laughs> That's the same guy? That's the same guy. 
the baby Jesus, the crowd, yeah, the same guy. That's when he did her. People had crossed Jerusalem, the birth, Bethlehem. That's the one. God made him who knew no sin. He lived a sinless life, category all his own. Here's when he did her, 1 Peter 3.18, all the apostles, this is the gospel. There's not a different gospel. These different writers are all saying the same thing. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's when it happened. Why did it happen that way? Why did God choose to redeem man through the righteousness of his son to redeem sinful man? Why did God do this? Can I tell you I know why? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29, 30, and 31 say this, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, according as it is written, let him who glorieth glory in the Lord. You see, that's what we do. We glory in the Lord. My salvation is of God. I contributed nothing to it. It's a gift. I'm saved by grace through faith and that not of myself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he hath saved us. Maybe for Drusilla's sake, being a Jewess, he slipped in an Isaiah 64, 6. For we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as menstrual cloths. That's what that word means, filthy rags. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have carried us away. He's drum rolling. The righteousness of man is not worth a biscuit. You want to be right with God? You got to get on his righteousness. Ephesians 1, 13. Let me give it to you. Let me be. Could we just be real transparent for just a moment? How many of you say, I believe I'm saved, I believe I, I know the Lord, but there's been times I've had doubts if I'm really saved. Any, anybody pray to receive Christ more than once? <laughs> Man, I was getting saved. <laughs> How many of you know it doesn't say be born again and again and again and again and again and again and again? It didn't say that. Now listen to this verse. This is the Apostle Paul. Man, a preacher of the gospel. I mean, apostle. Spirit called, filled, led. I mean, Ephesians 1, 13. In whom, I'll give you 12, that we should be to the praise of the glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, excuse me, you were, after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Is it later on, Ephesians chapter 4, 30? And grieve not the Spirit of God by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. People, I believe there are believers that know the Lord, that struggle with doubts. They go along in their Christian life like this. And sometimes for a year, just walk in place. They never move and don't grow and just, or some of this kind of stuff. But they're not walking with the Lord, with the Lord. And I think one of the biggest things is they don't have assurance of their salvation. And they don't have assurance of their salvation. They struggle with doubts because they don't understand the righteousness that's imputed to them when they receive Christ. Um, if you have doubts, I'll tell you why. It's because you ask yourself the question, have I done enough? If you understand the gospel, you will ask yourself the question, could I do enough? Because if you could do enough to please God without, and you could bypass the cross and the sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then he would have never sent Jesus to die on the cross. One person, if one person, I sought for a man and he found none. 
I had to come myself because there was no man among humanity who could pay the penalty of man's sin. He had to pay for his own. Could I do enough? If you understand the answer to that question, no, you'll start getting assurance. If you're going to work for the Savior, Christians, give them an honest day's work. If you're going to work for your salvation, don't you lift another finger. You stop immediately and, and just quote Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, to him his faith is counted for righteousness. Same stuff old Abraham got. If you're going to work for the Savior, not your salvation, just the Savior, give an honest day's work. But if you're going to work for your salvation, you don't lift another finger. You stop immediately. And you rely on the work that was finished at the cross of Jesus Christ through the forbearance of God in the garden. It was settled. God, all things are possible. If, I, if you will, let the cup pass. And the heavens were brass. And he said, there's no other way. This is plan A from before the foundations. You, we all agreed on this before she took off. He said, let's get her done. I got news for you. Calvary was settled in Gethsemane, not the cross. At any moment, if there had been an option, anything else, Jesus could have turned the place into ashes and the angels would have come and set him free. He settled her when he said, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Question. How sure are you you are saved. How sure are you that you're saved? Are you 50% sure? Are you 75% sure? I don't want you to answer me. I want you to think about this question. This is as serious as the grave, dear people. I use humor a lot of times because when you use humor, people drop their defenses and you can slide hard truth in there and they'll receive it as opposed to this. That's the only reason. This is serious stuff. We're talking about eternity. Are you 50% sure you're saved? Are you 75% sure you're saved? Are you 99% sure you're saved? Or are you 100% sure you're saved? What arrogance to think you could be 100% sure you're saved. What arrogance to think you could be 99% sure you're saved as though you contributed anything to the gospel message. What arrogance. These things, John said, have been written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. When he makes a promise, he's a promise keeper. When you say, I don't think I'm really good enough to be saved, I'll guarantee you you'll never be good enough to be saved. Your goodness will be the imputed goodness of God given to you when you put your faith. Well, how much faith do you have to have? How about mustard seed? You're not saved by your great faith. You're saved by His great grace. He gets all the glory. I get all the good. I get eternal life. I get the reward of heaven and being with my Maker and my Savior. It's the little stuff. Your faith can grow, dear people. Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, I hear that your faith groweth exceedingly. Oh, man. Well, two more. Man by the name of Abraham, familiar with him. Old Testament. Leave her of the Chaldees and go to a place that I will show you. He left not knowing where he went. That's faith. He just said, I'm going to do it. Um, he had moments of weak faith. He was in the land of Canaan, famine showed up. God said, stay here, I'll take care of you. The sheep began to bawl and everything else, and he's headed off to Egypt. While he's there, he picks up an Egyptian mistress given to his wife, Sarah. Her name was Hagar. You know the story. There were wrinkles in all of these great men and women of faith. Did you know that? And I'm glad God records the warts and the pimples of them all. Here they are. He's got... But he finally got to the place, and this is what they, see, I'm not going to preach for people to get saved tonight. I'm going to preach tonight for saved people to get assurance. That's what we need more than we need, just people getting saved, because i got news for you. I'll preach the gospel again and give an invitation for lost people to trust Christ that didn't get it before, that get it. These are people that have been, we've been hearing the gospel. Been, I have been amazed how many people even ministry struggle with whether or not they're really saved or not. The focus is all upon them. It's not upon Christ. You get the focus on Christ, can I tell you something? You'll know you're saved. 
because he's your only hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Those kinds of great truth. Listen to this verse in Romans chapter 4. He uses Abraham as an illustration. I'll just, I'd like, the whole chapter's good, but I'll get you down here to about verse 19, 18, 19, 20. It says this. He makes him the promise, and he goes into Sarah and says, we're going to have a son. I know we're going to have a son. God's told me we're going to have a son. You're 100. I'm 90. I don't even have a period anymore. What are you talking about? You're going to have a son. That's in there. If you, she said she was beyond age. I, I can't conceive anymore. So all you need is one seed. God will give it to you. It's going to happen. They come and she laughs. Oh, yeah, right. You know, what an act of faith at that age coming together. She conceives. When that son is born, watch this. From there on out, he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. He staggered not at the promise of God, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, believing that what, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. That's where we need to be. And this is the promise that he promised us, eternal life. If you were standing before God, evangelism explosion. If you were standing before God and God said, why should I let you in? What would you say? I'll tell you what I'd say. First two words out of my mouth would be, you said. I'm going to base my faith upon the word of God, being born again, not of a corrupt seed, but of incorrupt by the word of God. You said that if we would put our faith in Jesus as our only hope of eternal life, that you would make us your children. I'm holding you to it. You say, enter into my rest, son. But there are going to be those who do many wonderful works in the name of Jesus, cast out demons, and he said, I never even knew you because you were trying to make her in on your own works. You go to this great white throne and judge when the books are open and the works. I want my name in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb. Glory to the Lamb. settle it tonight if you're in that 99 75 wherever you're at settle it tonight and just tell God my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness get your eyes off of you and get them onto Jesus the author the originator and the finisher and the perfecter of my faith my faith has these the faith is straight up and my weak faith is in the faith. In the faith. Would you bow your heads with me? There's been intense preaching. This is a game changer. I need assurance. I need my eyes off of me and onto Jesus. I'm going to have a prayer in just a moment. For God to give you assurance that seals you under the day of redemption. I haven't got time to be questioning my faith in God and all this kind of... Because what I'm ultimately doing is wondering if His grace is really sufficient. I'm done with that. I'm going to settle it tonight. I want assurance of my salvation in the glorious gospel and that alone. And you say, Tom, I have struggled with that. And I want to settle it tonight. I want the assurance that my only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to me as a gift when I by faith receive Jesus. I'd like to pray for you in this closing prayer. You say, I want in on that, Tom. I believe I'm saved, but I have struggled with doubts. I want to move on. I've not doubted myself. I rode a roller coaster for 18 years. I'm saved, I'm not saved. I'm saved, I'm not saved because I kept looking at my life. When I settled it, September 8th, 1978, I have not doubted my salvation since I understood and embraced the gospel. You say, that's me. You say, I've been in church all my life. I'm in ministry. But I want that assurance. And I think I've got her tonight. Would you just pray for me? Anybody want in on this prayer? If you do, raise your hand up. Good, good. Number of you. Anybody else say that? I've struggled with this. But I've seen her tonight. Just remember me in prayer. Anybody else? I see some. Good. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, <laughs> it's not the prayer that seals the deal. It's the one to whom we're praying. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit 
would fill and fill and cleanse, restore, renew, revive the heart of every person here that has understood the gospel. Those who have it and understand that God, you know, the, they already know the blessing of the glorious gospel. But Father, for some that are saying tonight, I'm all done. I'm not drinking out of that well again. I'm going to the one that is a wellspring of life, springing up into me into life everlasting. I believe the promise. You've made the promise. I receive it. God, I pray you just seal them with your Holy Spirit of promise. Give them that blessed assurance that Jesus is theirs. That their only hope is Christ. Oh God, would you do that? Would you glorify yourself in giving them that grace? God, it's all grace. Would you do that? God, I pray that somehow we would leave here different than what we were when we came. And Lord, should we ever fall prey to wanting to doubt again, we'd just go back to the cross. It's, been, it's finished. It's done. There's nothing I can do. My confidence is in you, oh God. I pray they would review the gospel. They would preach the gospel. Pray the gospel to themselves. And that God, you would just give that blessed assurance. They'd have a, a year of resting in you. A decade of resting in you in a faith that carries them through any kind of trial knowing that their salvation is not in jeopardy because of something going on in their lives it's in Christ it's in the finished work I pray this now in Jesus name Amen